What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. Today, uh, we've got an hustle episode, which is, it's been a while since we've done it. Just a reminder, it's where I sit down with cool people doing cool shit in the uh, foreign policy industry. And I've got a cool one today. You better fucking believe. So this guy is a professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, uh, where he also directs the East Asia Nonproliferation Project. By all accounts, he is a fucking rainmaker when it comes to fundraising and side consulting. He has a podcast that basically inspired my show called Arms Control Wonk, which he co-hosts with Aaron Stein. He's got a new podcast series called The Deal that we'll get into. And he's the founder of the Arms Control Wonk blog, which when I was in the Pentagon was the go-to resource for sane, credible punditry about nukes and about missiles. And he does all of this stuff with flavor. He doesn't remove his personality from it. The entrepreneurialism, the truth to power honesty, the intellectual curiosity, the doing so much shit that it makes everyone feel bad about themselves. In all of these ways, this guy is my North Star in what is otherwise a mostly corrupt industry. And there are ways in which I have kind of modeled my own public identity on his. So this dude, is none other than Jeffrey Lewis. Welcome to the show, man. That is such a generous introduction. Most people <laughs> just say I'm a dick. <laughs> That's the flavor. It's the flavor. I'll take, it. <laughs> I'll take it. Man, yeah. So, like, I consider us buddies. I don't think I've ever, like, told you how much I've sort of looked at you as like, okay, this is something worth mimicking. Even my Twitter handle, it's at WonkVJ, the Wonk. Part of that is a gesture. Well, you know, that actually makes me feel really good because when I sort of gave up on the idea of being uh, an important person in Washington, <laughs> I, I consoled myself with the idea that uh, doing good work, uh, whether it's with uh, you know, students here or just generally being involved in the community, that that would be my contribution uh, rather than being like the dude who gets to do the stuff. Uh, so that, that makes me feel good. Yes. It's like I'm almost not wasting my life. You're almost not. I mean, to the cut, like, I don't know too many. There are some big name pundits out there, but it, for a lot of them, it's like the bigger their star is, the less sort of meaningful the things are that they have to say. But you have like an actual technocratic craft that you've honed. Like you have an actual subject matter expertise. When I look at some, I'm not throwing shade, but like when I see people like Ian Bremmer, what's their subject matter expertise? It's, it's basically like to talk out of their ass. And it's like you and I talk out of our ass sometimes, but there's this like baseline of, subject matter expertise that doesn't go away you know i don't know there's credibility right well and i think part of that is when you care about method and research then you are kind of stuck because you know when you think things are true it's because you really think they're true and you might be mm -hmm. wrong but you believe it mm -hmm. and i you know without throwing shade at 
particular people, I, which I don't know why I'm being so reluctant. I, you know, <laughs> That's like your this guy, brand. I don't, I don't have a beer in front of me. This is, I guess, the answer. But, yeah. you know, a route to being successful in Washington is telling people what they want to hear. You know, mm, I mean, like, yeah. like this is David Brooks's whole shtick, right? Is he's got this persona. He's kind of, you know, a little bit of a scold. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's very solicitous of other people in power. And so, like, people feel good reading him because he, you know, is basically just taking their biases and their prejudices and sort of dressing them up in fancy language and, and feeding them back to them. Yeah. And that's, like, that's a thing. You can do that. But I, I much more like the, you know, here's six reasons you're fucking wrong. Yes. Uh, it just is more fun to me. And, you know, it has its costs, but then again, it has its benefits. Okay. So I want to, I want to talk about the scene that you exist in and that you're a big voice in, but I'm also partly, I'm curious about your own career arc, uh, and like how you narrate that and the different spots that you've been up until this uh, point, like, how did you become this guy arms control wonk? But just like, if we go back to the beginning, what's some like, you know, basic stuff, like where you grew up, you know, what did your parents do for a living? What did you study in school? That kind of stuff. Right. So I grew up in rural Illinois. Okay. Uh, my father was a factory worker. My mother didn't work at all. I mean, she worked raising two yeah, children, yeah. but I mean, uh, you know, so we were definitely working poor uh, and it was a really strange upbringing for me because I was somebody who from the earliest, you know, my earliest memory is I was really fascinated by the outside world, but living in a rural place where not only was the outside world really freaking far away, but that there was, I think, a general kind of suspicion of people who might want to someday leave or someday go someplace else. Like, Mm -hmm. I think one of the best encapsulations of that is I was hanging out after I had moved to D.C. with one of my best friends from high school um, who, (laughs) you know, like I have I have more friends who went to prison than graduated college. I think from high school. <laughs> Same. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's a lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, and I was talking to uh, his, his girlfriend and do, do you remember there used to be this PBS show? It was like the great chefs of, and it would show like nice restaurants in cities around the world. That, that was on TV because that's like what you do in the Midwest when you have nothing to do is you sit around and watch TV together, which sounds weird, but like, again, it's a hobby. And we were watching one of those shows and it was about uh, like great restaurants in DC. Uh, and I had been to a couple of those restaurants because I had moved and mm. you know I was really having fun. And, and she was like, I would never want to go to a restaurant like that. And I was like, why? And she was like, I'm afraid I wouldn't like the food. And I just, to me, that was such a perfect encapsulation of that place because, you know, if you've been to a nice restaurant, like a, you're paying them, they want you to be happy. Yeah. B food is great. Even fancy food. It's all like chefs are like not really all that fancy people. They're people who like food. The food's going to be awesome. And yet there was that fear and that sense that you know like she didn't quite belong and that it might be weird and it might be awkward and and so like that's very much the place I grew up and it's just I just didn't feel that way you know like there was a whole world out there and I, I need to get the hell out of Pekin Illinois 
which also is like just not a great place to live. So you didn't go to school locally then? Well, I went to school a couple hours away at Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois. And Rock Island, also not a great place to live, but way better um, than Pekin. I mean, we used to have white supremacists recruiting across the street from from our high schools. Just a really, really ugly place. And so Augustana was like a nice change of pace. It wasn't too big. It wasn't like I was moving to some giant, scary uh, place far away. It was sort of relatable to me. Um, and, and honestly, I had a great experience there because it was a pretty small school. It was a liberal arts school and I'm not sure I would have been ready to go someplace more competitive. And in fact, I just, I had the time of my life, made some of my best friends, uh, and got interested in philosophy, which is not something I expected to do. So, hmm. uh, you know, I'm not sure. I think schooling is a lot about fit. And for me, it was a great fit. I think that's right. Yeah. It's the, one of the tragedies of like my generation is that I think we were told you have to go to the best school possible. And I'm just not sure that's true. No, you know, I think it's probably, it would seem strange and, and maybe in retrospect, you know, was, was problematic, but we lived in such a small place. We had really good faculty who were pretty young and frankly, they became our friends, you know? So I would go hang out at their houses and, you know, we'd have dinner oh, that's and, cool. You know, and it wasn't I mean, it wasn't weird because, okay, maybe they were 10 or 15 years older than us, but they were still at the beginning of their careers. And we had a lot more in common with one another than we did, you know, uh, hanging out at the uh, the bringer in again, uh, which was which was a uh, restaurant. Bringer was the family name, but the uh, the logo was a caveman dragging a woman by her hair, which wordplay sense of. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. Oh, my God. So, you know. So, I mean, it's a, it was a, it was a weird experience, but I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Was this like early nineties or when, what was the time period? Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. I graduated, I graduated high school in, I guess, 1993. Uh, so this was 93 to 97. Okay. And then how did you end up in DC or when did that happen? Yeah. So that happened pretty much right at the end of my time. So I, I showed up at Augustana and got really excited by philosophy. Uh, and, and much of what I do today is still really informed by that. I like epistemology, the study of how we know what we know mm-hmm. and, and philosophy of science. And so I was really into that, but I didn't want to be an academic philosopher because I, I don't know if you've ever actually read like a proper, uh, piece of scholarship, but it's, it's turgid. Yeah. Ooh. And, and, uh, oh, I just not, not for the great as an undergraduate, not for the rest of my life. And so I was like, well, you know, shit, what the hell am I going to do? And then this idea of this big, big world reasserted itself. And I was a little bit lost. And I had a political science professor suggest I try an internship in Washington, D.C., the junior, the the year between my junior and senior years. Uh, And I I moved to Washington, D.C. for the summer. And it was incredible, like to to suddenly be surrounded by other young people uh, who had like the same kind of outlook that I did, mm-hmm. you know, like it wasn't weird to be interested in politics or policy. Uh, it, and, and DC is a really young city. Yeah. Um, it, it was just, it was incredible. And I actually idealism in the beginning. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's great, right? Because you are idealistic and you're surrounded by other idealistic people. Yeah, and yeah. it's just, 
I think, you know, being 21 and a summer intern in Washington, D.C. is just a, I, for me, it was a fantastic experience. I didn't want to go back. Uh, I mean, I did, and I, I wanted to see my friends for the last couple of semesters. But when I went back, everyone kind of laughed that, that I had really changed in the sense that I now had a very clear idea of what I wanted to do, which was to go back into D.C. Uh, and, and work on policy issues, which, you know, a, a, after I graduated, I did. What was your first gig in D.C.? Like everybody else, I worked at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. You're a CSIS guy too, Jesus. Everyone (laughs) is. It's because it's because they take unpaid interns. And actually, I I was really lucky because I I worked for Mike Mazar. Uh, I don't know if my you wait seriously. Yeah. Oh Oh yeah. Oh my god. He's like one of my best DC friends. He is such a kind and he's in some sense a terrible introduction to dc yeah (laughs) because he's smart and kind and giving yeah right and you think oh everybody's like mike like no uh and mike mike understood that i did not have a ton of money Hmm. and that an unpaid internship was not a thing that i could really sustain uh and and he was really great at sort of conveying that you know, if I worked hard and, and, and delivered that, you know, I'd have a serious chance at sticking around for a paid gig. And, and he did, wow. uh, he, 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 he followed through on that. So again, I, I, I count myself as so lucky because Mike was such a, a great mentor at the beginning. It's kind of, I don't actually see Mike all that much these days. Um, and I, you know, I don't know how much he ever thinks about, you know, uh, one intern from one summer, but in my life, he had such a huge effect. Wow. Yeah. I owe him, it's a sidebar, but I owe him a lot for my transition out of the Pentagon and into sort of think tank academia world. Like he was one of a handful of people that I was like actively getting mentorship from and he didn't know me shit. I mean, like he, it was just out of like the goodness of his heart or something. I don't know why he gave me the time of day, but um, it helped a lot. Like and now he's actually on the Twitter. He's yeah. relatively new to it, but it's good to have him in the mix with stuff. Wow. Okay, so you're at CSIS, and so you're 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 getting paid finally. What's going? I mean, What's you know, your... it's not that much not... money. <laughs> yeah. Well, so then then my life has these like two uh, disruptions. One disruption is I'm still at this point very ambitious mm-hmm. and. Uh, I'm working for this guy, Bill Taylor at CSIS and Bill was great. I mean, I mean, Bill was, Bill was a disaster, but like just an incredible boss. Uh, he was Elvis's commanding officer in the army. Wow. And, and, uh, Bill drank too much for his own good. And, and, and that was a problem. Uh, but he was like this incredibly loving guy. Uh, he also, by the way, taught me to swear. The summer I, I came, went back, maybe it's Thanksgiving after I'd been working for him for a while. Uh, I came home and my parents were like shocked because every third word out of my mouth was fuck. And I didn't even notice it just because Bill was like, Bill would walk up to you and he'd be like, God damn it. I read that paper you wrote. That's a fine paper. Come here. Give me a hug. I fucking love you, man. Yeah. And you know, you'd have to give Bill a kind of, a kind of, a kind of hug. Like he was just, he was supportive and, and, and great that way. But but Bill was getting at the end of his career and he he left uh, and was replaced by Kurt Campbell. Mm. And I got I got to sort of work with Kurt up close. And I 
I like Kurt a lot, but our views are simply not the same. Mm -hmm. Just our views aren't the same. And so that was my first kind of like, uh, well, shit. Uh, this guy is the future of the Democratic Party on Asia. That's the job I want. Hmm. And I, I, I like him well enough, but it's just like, that's not for me. And so I'm like, well, what the hell am I going to do? So I, 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 I arranged for an internship at the, uh, I was sort of in the process of, you know, I was always checking out different things. I got an internship at the Department of Defense and I spent a summer at DOD. And I hated that. Right. And so now I'm like, well, shit, the hell am I going to do with my life? And at that point, I had been, uh, I had just started a, a PhD program at the University of Maryland because I figured at some point it'd be useful to have a PhD. And it, that was really one of the big turning points in my life because at that point, I decide maybe I don't want to be this DC person. Maybe I want to be something much more academic. And in that context, I met John Steinbrunner, who was the chair of my dissertation and, you know, was like a parent to me for five years. Uh, and so that that completely changed my outlook, because at that point I was like, OK, yes, like, these are my people. Uh, I am like John. I look at the world in the way John does. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I look up that. to him. Yeah. Uh, I often joke that my entire all the work I do is basically just recycling John's work from the 70s and adding obscene jokes yeah f-bombs yeah, yeah um, right yeah. that's interesting uh, and so that was great and that that really that put me on this different path because john really encouraged me uh to take this kind of much more critical approach which suits my personality just fine mm -hmm. um and then it was actually in that context uh, especially working a little bit with steve fetter uh, who was also on my committee um i started integrating little bits of open source work uh, in my dissertation. So you owe a lot of the, the technocratic chops that you developed to your time at Maryland. Were you, were, they, were you there full time or? The well, PhD? so we've just, you were, you in that very generous introduction, you, uh, pointed out to my challenge as a workaholic. It's so intense, I was dude. working it's full time <laughs> and, and, and doing my PhD full time. I did the same thing uh, by the way, but which is also like, that was not modeled on you. It's just a coincidence, but yeah, it's not something I recommend for people, but it was the same well, experience and it was hard. I, so not having a lot of money growing up, I did not want to borrow money. Like debt is something that's always been very terrifying to me. Yeah. Uh, and so even when I was in school, I had jobs uh, and I, I always tried to make sure that whatever job I had was, you know, not, you know, I, I didn't want to have jobs that were unrelated to school. I wanted to be able to kind of, make these things mutually re reinforcing or you go crazy. Sure. Uh, so I kept working at CSIS and then I found, I was like the director of the Association of Professional Schools of International Affairs, which is like a halftime job. And so I, you know, I, I had, I had irons in the fire and, and worked pretty much most of the way through. Yeah. I, I could probably like Wikipedia this, but like, when did you actually finish the PhD and when does arms control wonk the blog start? Same time. I'm, 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 I was in the final stages of the PhD, uh, and I, I would go to this, um, do you know the, um, politics and prose bookstore in Washington, yes, DC? I love that place. So every day I would go to politics and prose where I would work on my dissertation because my apartment was right next to it. And I later learned Alice Schelling, Tom Schelling's wife saw me every day. Uh, what? Tom was on my committee. Yeah. And Alice never once said hello. 
until after I was done with the dissertation. And then she said, hello, and explained that she had seen me there every day for like a year and a half, but that I always looked so busy and she never wanted to interrupt me, Uh, which is just, I guess, I guess Tom knew I was working. Uh, As I was finishing the dissertation, I was doing lots of work and research that was related to the dissertation, but I wanted to write every day because I had this kind of feeling that even if I wasn't writing on the dissertation, I needed to keep that writing going. So Mm -hmm. I actually started the blog as I was finishing the dissertation and I would sort of mix it up. You know, I might write uh, on the dissertation for a few hours and then to reward myself, I do a blog post or if I just couldn't get anything going with the dissertation, I might try writing a blog post and see if that got me going. Uh, And so I did those two things sort of simultaneously, which was really interesting because as I was finishing the dissertation and starting to come out, starting to come out into the job market, uh, it was a different time back then. People were like, that blog is extremely inappropriate and you are going to kill your career. No way. Oh, because this is like blog wave 1.0 or whatever, right? Oh, yeah. Early 2000s. Totally. My my favorite I keep saying my favorite, Michael, here. Michael Crapon, who I love and adore. I mean, Michael is just, uh, he writes for arms control, the blog all the time. Michael is wonderful. Michael, we were in Geneva, I think. And Michael sat me down and explained to me that my career was doomed if I kept writing like that. <laughs> and, you know, he was like, you know, the blog is very clever. And it got you noticed and that's great. And it's time for you to stop. And what I love about Michael is if you ask him about that story, he will absolutely tell the same story. And he says, I was wrong, you know, which is what makes him such a great mentor. I mean, one of the things I love about Michael is he's such a great example in for me, uh, not just the policy stuff, but how to deal with other people. Mm. You know, he has a kind of kindness, at least he, he, you know, he did toward me, particularly when I would get like fired up about things. He's, he's good at like teaching me to calm down uh, and, and enjoy things. So that was, yeah. I mean, actually, I also, when I, I, I interviewed for a job at the Carnegie Endowment Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, Joe Serencioni was like, you're going to have to get rid of the blog. And the job I ultimately took was at uh, Harvard at the Belfer Center for a year. And and they were like, okay, we'll let you keep the blog, but you have to tone it down. I so can't imagine those like, kinds of conversations it. happening now. It's like, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, look, I will be the first person to admit I sometimes, especially being young, would write things that I now look back on and think like, ah, I don't know if that was I don't know if that was fair. Lyndon Brooks, who I, uh, another person I really like, once asked me, you know, is there anything you ever regret writing? And I was thinking, like, some of the things I said about you? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, so for people Um, listening who, if everybody probably has checked out the blog, but if you haven't seen the way he writes at Arms Control Wonk, it's with a candor that you don't see in normal sort of like foreign policy writing. And I've got to imagine in the early blog days, that was hyper radical. Given the sort of oh, people cultural conservatism. Angry. Yeah. Very angry. I could see that. Um, yeah, that was a, that was definitely a thing. Um, but, you know, it was okay because 
I had gone through that process of of saying I don't really want to work in the government as I, I, I don't want like a nine to five job like that. And I don't think that there's a place for me as, you know, a, a, a foreign policy boffin someday hmm. because I just I struggle to keep my opinion to myself. So like I'm just going to be me and, like, you know, yeah. it's either good enough or it's not. But I don't care. Man, it's so similar to me. That's what's so funny. And I don't know if it's similar out as a coincidence or because I really am just like serial stalking you or something. Um, well, I, I, I will say this. Um, what I hope it, uh, is, is that there are probably a bunch of people like us out there who are opinionated and who are critical of the typical way of doing business. And when you don't see someone sticking their neck out and saying like, actually, all this is bullshit, um, it can be kind of scary, right? Yeah, and I, yeah. I, what I hope is that, you know, when we do things like stick our necks out, then it encourages other people like, no, nah, it'll be okay. Like you can have opinions, you know, that may be a cost to that. There may be some jobs you won't get, but you can still have a career and have an opinion. Uh, and so, I, I mean, I hope it's, I hope it's the demonstration effect, you know, that yeah. these, these views exist. You're not crazy for having these views. Um, and, and you're not unemployable, although you might not get some jobs. Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah. I, I kind of think of it as like, not, I, didn't, I wasn't super conscious about this at the time, but like you created a kind of safe space and like, there were probably other people doing this too, but like the radical candor the willingness to sort of play nice with the foreign policy establishment, but also like not hold back your criticisms, uh, especially when they were coming from a place of like knowledge or principle or whatever. And like that you could do that and still get invited to the show to, to still get consulted or brought in when the next ambassador needs to be confirmed and they need the subject matter expert round table and all that stuff. Um, like you were not persona non grata at any point from DC writ large. And yet you were not culturally conservative or you weren't buttoned up the way that everybody else was, which seemed very repressive to me. Um, and which seemed like part of like, ultimately I feel like there's a version of history where things like the Iraq war get traced back to the fact that like we all muzzle ourselves too much, you know? Oh, I lived through that. And yes, I mean, being a at that point, I, I was in grad school and I had had that shift. Right. So I had done that summer at DOD and didn't like it. And mm. I observed how seemingly rational friends of mine were saying insane shit. And I mean, I'll never forget one friend of mine who ran an NGO that brought Palestinian and Israeli children together telling me with a straight face that removing Saddam would jumpstart the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Wow. And like, this guy is not dumb and this guy is not the devil, but there was this enormous group thing and, and the consequences of deviating from that, you know, I, I, it wasn't the end of the world, but there were definitely costs. Yeah. And so I think people talk themselves into all kinds of things. And I, you know, I just, I enjoy being the person 
who says, nah, this is all bullshit. <laughs> I, I just, that's me. Okay, so Iraq War happens. You've got a PhD in hand. You've got, uh, you're, you're sitting literally at the Belfer Center at Harvard, and you've got this arms control wonk blog. What's, what's the next thing? What's the next opportunity? What's your next move? So I didn't really like working at Harvard. Um, that was probably as much about me as it was about Harvard, although I, I found Boston to be a really tough place to live. Uh, I used to joke that Boston sucked, so I sucked back. Uh, I was like not the nicest person on earth. And I, I decided I wanted to volunteer on a presidential campaign. And uh, and so eventually I, I got this job at the New America Foundation to get myself back to D.C., mm. uh, uh, working on what was such a cool project. Uh, the Open Society Institute was funding Mort Halperin to do a study on uh, future of U.S. nuclear weapons policy. Hmm. And I so like I got to go follow Mort around D.C. for two years. And this so is in the Mort, Bush era? Uh, yeah, the end of Bush uh, before Obama. Okay. Knowing that Bush is leaving and there's going to be a new president, uh, not knowing who that's going to be. The question is, what would a what would a nuclear policy look like? And hmm. and it was the co-chairs of this were Mort Alperin and Arnie Cantor. And wow. I just, I have been so lucky in my life to just be surrounded by like really incredible people. Like my, my undergraduate advisor uh, was a philosopher named Heidi Storl. And she's just, was just in just incredible. And like the perfect person uh, for like a wayward me. Like she had like just the right amount of patience for my nonsense. Um, you know, so lucky to work for Mike Mazar and Bill Taylor at CSIS. Uh, you know, having John at, 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 at Maryland was so great. Um, not least because John came with this whole like community of people, which is how I got to know Jan Nolan, who was wonderful. Um, and then, you know, to work for Mort and Arnie for like, how was it like maybe 18 months, two years uh, before Arnie passed away was just amazing and i learned so much and i what i was doing was positioning myself to go into a future democratic administration mm -hmm. having kind of apprenticed under under morton arnie um uh which looked like it was going to happen uh right obama wins i was a volunteer on the campaign i lined up a, a job uh, uh at the state department um and then stuff happened <laughs> uh, people may remember bob einhorn got shoved aside by ellen tauscher yeah and yeah. so the job i had disappeared uh but then somebody found me a different job but it was like a little bit lower than i wanted and i, I think at that point i was just like i don't think i want to do this and i my wife and i were just I, we had our first child and i i didn't like the job i'd gotten offered and i was just like what am i doing and we had taken a vacation to Monterey like the year, I think, before my son was born. And I didn't want to come home. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> and so I'm like, I don't like the job I've been offered in the Obama administration. You know, I'm pretty arrogant. So I, I feel like I should have like my boss's job, which yeah. is like no one else sees me that way. But I see myself that way. And like now I have a child and I really only had the new America job because I wanted to position myself for this other job. And so, I, you know, I, I don't know, what am I doing? 
and then the job at at in Monterey opened up and I was like okay done I'm out so it it was just the fortuitousness of the job in Monterey popping up and you knowing how amazingly just oh god fuck for people everybody who listens to this doesn't know this but like Monterey is the place that like made me it's the place where i'm bound to die it's like everything it's shangri-la living in wellington new zealand is as close as i can mirror monterey without being there basically <laughs> it, it's fucking sweet um and you got you were you were smart on that like you knew about how good it was because you had gone the year before but then it just yeah. it was happenstance that the job popped you didn't like try to make it happen well, I let it be known that California was like a really appealing place, mm-hmm. uh, not thinking it would necessarily be Monterey, but just thinking that like I needed to get the get the F out of D.C. And and Bill Potter had been, you know, making noises and then and then a, a job opened up. Yeah. And he was like, why don't you apply? And I was like, OK. Wow. So old. So the way, yeah. So when you were at New America, were you in the the sort of path where you were getting the grants to fund yourself, and so you were there by partly? I mean, somebody's good graces had to make this slot available for you. But were you like self funding, yeah. and so you were able to like bring your funding apparatus with you to Monterey? Is that? Well, I wasn't, but it's okay. What What happened is at New America, I'd been working on a grant provided by the uh, Open Society uh, Foundation. Right. And so Mort was running the project um, out of out of Open Society, but I was basically the director of it and the grant had been given to New America. And mm-hmm. I don't know why they chose to set it up that way, but like that's what we did. But that grant was coming to an end because like now we had a democratic president along with a report on, you know, what our nuclear policy should be. And uh, I don't know if people remember this, but uh, Glenn fucking Greenwald went after Mort Halperin. No, and what? Somehow, yeah, so what? Mort, oh, this was the worst. This was the, so Fuck I that knew guy first Greenwald, of all, but yes, yeah, I knew Greenwald was a scumbag early on because of this. So Mort had been working on uh, FISA reform and Foreign Intelligence he, Surveillance Act requests, yeah. Yes, check, right? Warrantless wiretapping or wiretapping with warrants. And, you know, the warrants being pretty easy to get. Yeah. And Mort worked for a really long time. And ultimately, the compromise that was hammered out, which, you know, was not ideal, but there came a point at which Feinstein's office basically was of the view that they had gotten the best that they could get and there just weren't Democrats who were going to push for more. And and Mort wrote an op-ed in which he said, you know, this is not perfect, but it is reform. It's as best, you know, you're going to do. Um, this was like right before Obama came into office or maybe right after. It's sort of right at the very beginning. Mm. Um, and maybe Democrats didn't hold the Senate or didn't hold the House. I don't I don't remember the details. But basically, Mort said, look, this is not perfect, but this is an improvement. And it's the best we're going to get right now. We should take it. Which is, you know, you could agree, disagree, but it's not a, it's, it's a pretty, un, you know, just whatever. It's a pretty typical, typical view. Mm-hmm. You know, you think the political process is played out and, and this is the best deal you're going to get. And Greenwald goes after Mort 
because, you know, Mort is somebody who Nixon had wiretapped um, right. and who had been right. And fucking Nixon, they were going to firebomb his office at the Brookings Institution. That's right. He was at the heart yes. of that shit. Yes. Uh, a man who Dan Ellsberg, uh, Richard Nixon in grand jury testimony said that Halperin and Ellsberg were drug buddies. Oh, my God. <laughs> which I'm I not forgot sure about that history. Was false. I was Not thinking sure of his scholarship shit. He's like, he was yeah. famous for other reasons too. Oh fuck. Mort is the best. Oh man. Uh, oh, I just, I, like I said, I've been so lucky. Greenwald basically implies that Mort is this shill for uh, the, you know, mainstream centrist Democrats and is just angling for a job, which mm. I know is bullshit because Mort's uh, partner, Diane Orn, like it's got a job already. And like she's going in and it's not on this stuff. And like Mort's just hanging around. Well, so Mort ended up resigning as being the president of the, I forget, they're the different entities. So I'm probably getting it wrong. But Mort was the president of one of the open society entities. And he had to resign because of the blowback that Greenwald was able to generate because people at this point were still gullible enough to believe that Glenn Greenwald was some progressive icon. They thought he was real, yeah. Not a fucking yeah, human they, troll, they, yeah. They fucking fell for it because, I mean, you know, I mean, let's face it, right? It's a progressive firing squad. It's a, rainy, a raid in a circle. Yeah, yeah. That's what we're good at. Yeah. So, I, so I, Mort was not working full-time on these issues anymore. I had been working to raise additional money, but like suddenly it was harder uh, and I didn't have like the clarity of purpose and, you know, new America was a great place. I don't, I don't have any, I don't have any, there's nothing I didn't like about it, but it really was just a place to hang my hat before I went and got a job in the administration, which I, you know, am now turning down because I don't like it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've got this child and it's like, wouldn't you rather just hang out on the beach? <laughs> yep. Pretty much. You know, it, it's like, so I actually took a pay cut. Oh, to go to Monterey? Yeah, which is, you know, not not a great financial It's not a cheap decision. place either, yeah. No. I mean, I, I I make more now. I can't complain. I, I'm very I was well gonna, compensated. Well, yeah, but. like, I mean, Bill Parter built a, his own sort of empire outpost out there in Monterey, but, like, you have also done that. I mean, you've, Monterey is, like, a hub now for nuke stuff. And it, it's, you you have staff. I mean, you pay staff money like this. All this shit costs money and it's in a super expensive place. And uh, you are clearly so you so you started off with like a semi clean slate in terms of uh, grant making when you went over there and just. Yeah, I mean, we had some grants and I I I, I raised some money um, and then just over time. So basically, I have a dual appointment. So the college or the institute pays uh for a faculty appointment for me and then i raise the rest of my salary uh on soft money through the center okay but you know it's good uh you know we have good support from foundations um plowshares always has my back that's awesome we do okay i can't i can't complain i've never i i'm sure that if i failed to raise my salary i don't think bill would throw me out uh, but I've never had to have that conversation with him. So it's been okay. Yeah. And so you, so the thing that you're 
the Institute is most famous for right now, I think, as a bystander, is the the open source work on nukes and missile related shit that you guys do. And so the open source kind of toolkit, I don't even know how to describe it, like the open source analysis based on satellite imagery, mostly, it seems like um, you, you guys produce these like unbelievable viral content that, you know, comes from stuff like satellite imagery and where did these methods come from? Like, this is the stuff that gets you on CNN. This is why you're on CNN fucking all the time. This is like, this is, this is your, your fame basically is like from being able to marry up the open source methods with the sort of like arms control analysis type stuff. Yeah. It comes from like three different places. So one one thing that feeds into this is, remember, I'm a philosophy major who's interested in epistemology and philosophy of science. Mm -hmm. And so even when I was doing my dissertation and I was looking at China's nuclear forces, I was doing some kind of nascent uh, open source work precisely because I couldn't get factual answers to my questions because you can't go ask the Chinese how many nuclear weapons do you mm -hmm. have. Mm -hmm. So I can look up how many nuclear weapons the US government says they have, but then I'm using open source work to try to, you know, make heads or tails of differences in assessments. So if I read in a book that China has a nuclear facility in some place, or I see a declassified document that says that, I realize at that point I can go to Google Earth and I can look at the place myself. And and so that's that's kind of that's that's track one. And and having Steve Fetter on my committee is hugely helpful because he can teach me and help me with all the technical things that I initially need to do. Okay. So I kind of start to go down that route. The other piece, so I guess piece one is I'm interested in that stuff. Piece two is my, my dissertation kind of touches on that. And then when I get here, uh, we're right next to Silicon Valley. We I, like, I am so lucky because I have these two friends from DC, Robbie Shingler and Will Marshall. And I used to work with Robbie's partner, uh, 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 well, I guess uh, Jesse Cade Cowan Sharp. I, I think she goes by Shingler now. Uh, she worked for Teresa Hitchens at the Center for Defense Information on space weaponization stuff. And she got Will involved. Okay. And so like, we would all hang out together. We'd like go to like their house for parties and just like had a great time. They were like awesome. They are still some of the most unusual people I have ever met. You know, you meet some people and you are like, you are not like the other bears. Um, like they were like that. And you were hanging just, out with them more because they just happened to be in California and you knew them before. No, 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 no. This is in DC. Oh, okay. We know, I know them in DC. Okay. So Will and Robbie start planet, the imaging company. Oh. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm like, Hey, Hey, can I, can I get some imagery? And the funny thing is knowing the founders of a company is not as valuable. It turns out, I mean, it's great for like top cover, but you know, I'm trying to like get them to like engage with us just cause they're my friends. And I, you know, want to see them again and work with them again. Mm -hmm. And uh, a guy named uh, Trevor Hammond, who is now uh, Will's chief of staff uh, notices we do some work and he like calls us up and he's like, you know, we have pictures of that site. And so like we start collaborating with Trevor and then Will and Robbie realize it's going on. They're like, that's great. That's our pal, you know? Uh, 
And so we kind of build that relationship out. And then it's this opening to all these other companies. Because, you know, we have the CEO of Planet saying that CNS is the, you know, one of the most valuable academic partnerships they have. Wow. And and so it just it just snowballs from there. Yeah. Damn. That's cool. I, that's just pure luck. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, I should have moved into the group house and I, you know, I and 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 been around when they started planning. Uh, you know, then I, then we'd be having this conversation from like my yacht or something. Yeah, geez. But but as it was, it's just it, it's just been it's been incredible. Uh, and you know, the reality is, is that planet's organized in such a way that we, we have a really productive relationship. Um, uh, and you know, I don't have to go to them. I have to go to the CEO when I want something because, uh, you know, uh, there's Trevor and now Ann Pellegrino, right. Formerly of the podcast right. and a there. graduate of our yeah. program. She, she now works for Trevor and is our primary point of contact. So I, we have these great working level contacts, but it's also super nice to know that, you know, when we do something that's really cool, um, you know, they know that their bosses notice it and that there is high level support at Planet for the stuff that they want to do. So it's just this incredible relationship where you've got, you know, the people on top having having great vision and ethics. And then, you know, the people who we are working with on a day to day basis are freaking geniuses. OK, uh, and it's just awesome. So at this point, to catch everybody up, you have <laughs> you're you're. <laughs> You're now in Monterey, you're doing the normal sort of think tank grant making stuff, and then you're teaching at the Middlebury Institute there in Monterey. And then you have this fortuitous planet connection that gives you, there's a legitimacy exchange going on between CNS and planet, but also like it's this this imagery that you're able to get from them becomes the sort of the, the fodder that you can use to do open source analysis, which is this I don't want to say it's new, but like it's just sexy, novel way of of generating insights and kind of monopoly insights. Like for the most part, you're able to generate insights that like are not coming from anywhere else. It's like breaking a story or something. And while you're doing all of that, you still have the arms control wonk blog going and you're still doing the sort of public facing pundit type stuff. And I'm guessing by this time you're on Twitter. Oh yeah, off yeah. Twitter, people. Twitter, Twitter starts just as I'm leaving DC, I think. Okay, so you're 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 basically doing like all of the above. Like you start an initiative, and then you as you jump to something new, you're basically keeping the old thing kind of going, and like you're accumulating activities, initiatives. Yeah, yeah. Man, I'm, I mean, I'm not sleeping much. Yeah. Okay. Because now, 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 now I have more kids, so there's there's. It's also that. I mean, this is the other thing. Like, I this I'm I'm at this point where I'm feeling this now myself in like a painful ass way. Like, it's good to be successful. It's very lucky to be successful. There's a point though where like the the better off you're doing, the harder you're having having to work. And it's like something yeah. you you can't complain about because like you're very lucky to be in that kind of position. But it's hard to say no to opportunities. The shit just you only have 24 hours in a day. And so like it, there's the, these, like when I see successful people for the most part, they are also working their asses off. They're just in a different plane of existence. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if this is an advantage or a trauma 
but growing up where I did without a lot of a lot of a lot of money or joy like <laughs> moving back in with my parents is like not an option yeah, right same. and and so there is definitely I do have this drive uh which you know I, my friends often point out where they're like like you realize if you if you like chill out like you're not gonna have to like go back to Pekin, right? Like, you know that. But like, there's a part of fine. you that can't shake the feeling that you might, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. 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 You know, like, I I don't know. If I can't pay my rent, like, what happens? Exactly. Yeah. And I notice it's really different where with my friends who grew up very comfortable, money for them is just a thing that appears. It's not that they don't work hard. And it's not that they don't, they're not careful. It's that they, they don't have this nagging fear you know like somewhere in the back of their mind they're like well i mean if something really catastrophic happens you know i don't i don't know what but they think like it'll be fine because in their experience it's always been fine yeah yeah and and so it gives them a kind of confidence and uh you know something i really am envious of and that i admire whereas i am like literally like will i have to go back to the the bad racist place like that would suck <laughs> Like, this is so similar to me, man. This is so similar. It's like a pathology for me. I It sucks to be poor in America. Yeah. And I think rich people don't get that. They think that like being poor is like your house is a little smaller or something. I don't think they understand. No, it's like warped my brain for life, you know, and I'm just yeah. trying to make the most of it basically. <laughs> okay. So you're doing all this shit and it's accumulating. You're losing daylight hours every day because you're spending all this time doing this. And then um, Trump becomes president. I might be skipping some stuff here, but Trump becomes president. Immediately, North Korea is like the hottest national security topic in the universe, the most important thing going on. And you and we we are you and I are writing books almost in parallel. You're a little bit ahead of me. And you're writing a while I'm writing on the brink, the nonfiction sort of narration of the crisis, you are presaging the crisis to an extent in this book of technically a fictional account of a North Korean nuclear war called the 2020 Commission. Where did this book come from? How did this come about? Oh, it's super easy. So I had been doing a lot of writing. And it is impossible to convince people that a nuclear war is going to happen in nonfiction. Not I've, I've noticed that. Could yeah. happen. <laughs> Be well, because here's the thing. In nonfiction, you're writing from this objective third-person view. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to rationally explain to people how leaders would do something so deeply irrational. Yeah. And so what I found was like a story tended to work a little bit better because it really brought out the human elements that I think would be necessary to get us to that catastrophe. And so I had to write, I think it was a Washington Post op-ed. Uh, and I I was like, I don't want to write another nonfiction op. You know, I don't, I don't want to write another op-ed about how a nuclear war with North Korea might start. Like yeah. I've written that a million times and nobody buys it and it's just not helpful. And so I suggested to, oh, it was Mike Madden at the post. I was like, can I write it as like a fictional short story? Because I, I just, I don't think people get it otherwise. And he was like, yeah, that sounds cool. Hmm. And so I did. 
and um and and i you know uh a book editor liked it <laughs> and and called me up and was like yep you can write you want to do that as a novel and i was like yeah okay wait did they cold call you yeah absolutely oh wow Man, yeah, I know. That's a hell of a... Alex Littlefield. He's awesome. Alex just called me up and was like, uh, I will give you money to write a novel version of that op-ed. Oh, wow. And I did. And I, you know, it was, it sold okay. Uh, I, I, I think I'm happier with the critical praise because like academics writing novels is like a danger zone. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I won't name names, but there are many famous academics who have attempted to write novels, uh, in, including ones with extremely awkward sex scenes. And yeah, uh, usually... nobody nobody likes that. Yeah. Nobody needs Joe Nye to be the number one lover man in town. Yeah. <laughs> this book, though, 2020 Commission, I mean, this is, on some ways, it's still my bucket list. You know, I, I think for most scholars, there's this there's this ultimate desire to see your book on an airport bookstore shelf. There's Which some... I did get to do. You did. I saw your fucking book at like seven yeah. airports, including in New Zealand. Like I, I went through, I went through SFO and I was like, fuck, there it is. Dude, Holy shit. I don't know what's after that. Like, what? <laughs> I still have this to look forward to, I guess, but like, that's fucking amazing. So you got yeah. the thrill from being in SFO and seeing it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it led to another cool project that I can't really talk about yet, but I got to consult with a much more famous author on a book that will sell many more copies than mine. Oh, wow. And like, it was just cool. Like, he's a cool guy. His book's cool. You know, it was that's, cool. That's exciting. So that, that that's all I can say point. about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's, I actually, I expected to see it out by now. It's not, so I don't, I don't know what's going on, but like, that guy was awesome, you know, for like a real, a real author to be like, hey, your novel was good. I'm going to write something like that. I mean, he didn't say it, but, you know, that's going to sell a lot more copies. That's crazy. Uh, uh, it's just so cool. Yeah. Did, awesome. did anybody, did any, like an agent or anything reach out about optioning the book for a film? It seems like this lends itself to yeah, kind of like a documentary got, or a film or something. Yeah, I've got, I've got an agent and we, uh, definitely there were some nibbles for, uh, for TV and film production. Uh, but in the end, um, nothing, nothing super serious. So I don't know. Part That's of just the, the way it goes, I guess. Yeah. I mean, with my own book, like. It, it did a fraction of what yours did in terms of sales, but the the mood that gave rise to the need for the book, like the climate of just like immense threat, churning, fear, inflation, warmongering, like the whole bit, and it made the book like an utter necessity on one level. But then by the time the book was out, the, Trump had basically tried to change the narrative and people were were moved on to like other new hot sexy crazy issues and it the there were still there's always like a cottage industry for sort of north korea stuff and you know war risk stuff but it wasn't the same it was like north korea was a pop cultural level attention thing in 2017 and then yeah, like 2018 it, it started tapering off and honestly i'm okay with it like yeah, me too <laughs> i had my i had my little moment of fame like We'd actually, Aaron and I, like Vice, looked at turning the podcast into a TV show. 
Uh, oh my god, that would be amazing. Yeah, I, I don't know that we were out. all that amazing. We actually went to uh, we went to New York and we filmed an episode, but uh, and they they made a sizzle reel out of it, but you know nothing came of it. So I, wow. you know, like that was cool. Uh, you know, I also uh, several of us from the community got to do this. Uh, we got to go around some writers' rooms in 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 L.A. Uh, to help TV shows, uh, including Madam Secretary, which eventually did do a nuclear uh, episode. Oh, so I right. got to. Yeah. I kind of got to see a little bit of that world and like that was cool uh although it's not like cooler than my actual job there's so many like you've hit so many waypoints or like there were things just on the other side of something that you did that were impossible for you until you did the thing and then yeah. suddenly and like it just kept going like that it seems like but then there's still a bunch of impossible things I haven't been able to do. So, you know. Ah, be president. Yeah. Um, Ooh, not a job I want, <laughs> I have to say. Yeah. I have to say. Politics is, it's funny because because we're in policy, there are politics. Yep. But actually, full-time political people, it's different. Yeah. And it's like not my bag. Yeah, same. Same. It's not. It's we not a, a space of, that's built for candor. To be totally honest, like ours. That's right. Ours. Ours should be or is. So you've got a new podcast called The Deal. Um, I I started listening to it maybe like a month ago, which it's been out for a little while now. But it's gripping. It's, and it's it's like entertaining and educating at the same time. What is it? Where did this come from? Can you tell people? Yeah. So. We had a grant to do some work on Iran and in particular uh, what the U.S. should do about uh, Iran's nuclear program. This and is this after was, Trump walked away from the... Right. After Trump walked away. And like, I just did not want to do like a really didactic piece where I explained to people the intricacies of the deal for the 87 millionth time because yeah. that's not what people care about. Right. And, and so we had this idea that what we really wanted to do was to tell a story that people could relate to. And, and I observed that one of the big issues is like when people would criticize the deal, they would make up outlandish lies about it. And proponents of the deal would be like, well, actually that's not true. If you read paragraph 47 on page 12, it says states party shall. And it, you know, it, it was like not an effective mode of communication Yeah, because the people who are lying about the deal were going to the heart of the issue, which is, fear and xenophobia, right? <laughs> Pretty much. And all the shit that mo motivates people. Yeah. And and those emotions are not going to be countered by suggesting that we engage in a bit of mutual textual exegesis. Like that's just not how human beings work. Right. And so what I wanted to do was to try to tell the story of the people who actually put the deal together and and let that story explain why they did what they did right because it's not about like is it a good deal is it a bad deal it's understanding who ernie moniz is and why he would be doing this mm -hmm. and and so we wanted to do that so you know there are two seasons now um they're kind of self-contained documentary uh style things the first one is about how the deal happened uh, and, and, you know, it's five episodes. And then the second season gets a little bit more introspective and 
kind of tries to get a, a little bit deeper of a question of like, it was such a good deal. And like, we walked away from it. Like, why do we do that? You know, why, why when we have solved a problem or at least put into place a structure to manage it, why is that somehow unsatisfying to us? And I wanted to sort of explore that idea a little bit. Uh, and so the tone of the second season is really a little, is different than the first season. Uh, you know, it's a little bit more, uh, it's a little bit more introspective and a little bit more critical, uh, but it has the same awesome score by Hannes Brown all the way through. Oh, so love it. if yeah. nothing else, uh, his score is just amazing. Yeah. The production value is just, it, it, it really helps make it. And like, I'm, I'm telling you right now, like everyone listening to the show, you got to listen to the deal. It's quality shit. Quality unlike this podcast. It's not there's nothing amateur about it. It's like it's so it's it's the kind of engagement that we need with the public now. Like we get trained with these intellectual weapons to engage in like public discourse stuff and the weapons are like all logos based, but the way people register information is like so in the pathos realm, you know, and there's something about yep. the model of the deal in 2020 commission, you are on the pulse of something about like how we ought to be doing our business as like a foreign policy sort of public intellectual thing in the future. I love it. It's fucking so good. Well, I, I can't fully take credit for that. Middlebury college has, a. uh, a a person who teaches podcasting named Aaron Davis and and we hired her mm -hmm. as our producer and it's Aaron who brought that genius sensibility to bear you know so That's i amazing, knew that yeah. i wanted to tell a a narrative and a story that was based around human beings mm -hmm. and wasn't all logos but Aaron was actually the person who could say like, okay, well, here's what a normal person would care about, <laughs> right? Because you are not a normal person, Jeffrey. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, and, and she's this wonderful mix of uh, brilliant uh, organizer of our script writing and everything, while at the same time, you know, having this like really deft artistic touch. So, uh, you know, I think I... I I do not think of it as like Jeffrey Lewis is the deal. I think it's, you know, Jeffrey Lewis and Aaron Davis is the deal. Uh, plus, I have to say, she hired a series of junior producers, all of who will go on to be famous later, who we could never afford again. That's uh, And remarkable. it's just because she's got incredible, incredible taste. So Mitchell, Juliet, Nikki, you'll all be very famous someday. Man, shout out. Yes, everybody who's involved in this has done something good for the world. So that's pretty sweet. But before we go, I wanted to get a sense of like, because of the how much you have on your plate and the fact that you're still writing and the fact that you're so super engaged on, on Twitter too, which is its own fucking universe time suck. What is a day in the life like in terms of your, your writing? Or in, term, in terms of like, what's a day in the life like, but where does writing fit into it relative to like so, everything else? Yeah. When I am actively writing, which I have really been struggling with lately, to be completely honest, because it uses a different part of my brain yeah, it's different. than all this other stuff. Um, I've got it. And, and uh, the pandemic has killed me 
what I used to do is I got up and I went to a coffee shop and I did nothing but write from eight till noon. Uh, nothing else no phone calls no emails no other projects just write and and then i could put everything else into the afternoon i haven't been able to do that since the pandemic Childcare, zoom schedules yeah. like the whole deal uh and it's why i haven't been as prolific uh when it comes to writing so were you and doing I, that schedule though even in the like the crisis year of 2017 yeah every like day. unbelievable just, media requests and shit yes Yep. I mean, obviously, if North Korea tested an ICBM or something, I'd give up the day. But like for me to give up my morning writing, that was a big fucking deal. And you better have a good reason. Mm. Yeah, the same way. So I think you just you just have to find that time when you're good at writing and you have to be selfish about it. And otherwise, you do you struggle with like that code mental code switching of like, yes, like when I do media, I don't know how it is for it must be like this for you when I do fucking TV, especially which I try not to do as much as possible. It almost ruins me for the rest of the day. Like I can't really do much else once I've had to be extremely present and then switching well, to writing is like fucking hard. Well, and I find like being on TV is you are a sociopath because <laughs> you are not really engaging with the person you're talking to. Mm -hmm. You are so focused. Uh, you know, you said hyper present. I think that's right, but in this really weird out-of-body way, which is I don't actually care what question I'm being asked. I am focused <laughs> on how am I sitting? What do I look like? How do I sound? Am I saying the thing I want to say? I mean, part of my brain is processing like, yeah, there's a question there, but like a perfectly acceptable thing on TV is to answer a question that wasn't even asked. Oh, yeah. You're absorbed in it's, the aesthetic of that moment. It's, it's, like, right. it's kind of the opposite of presence in a sense. Yeah. So I find it really funny. Like, I don't know if you know Robin Kernow, the CNN uh, international reporter, but mm -hmm. she is uh, uh, in-laws with some very good friends of mine. So I know her socially. And it's just very mm -hmm. funny because when, when I see her socially, you know, with like her husband and her kids and my friends and their kids and, you know, like we're all hanging out, our interaction is very different than when she interviews me where like, our eyes have both rolled back in our heads and we're like lizard people, you know, like not really. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. You know, she's asking questions <laughs> and not listening to my answers. And I'm not listening to her questions and just giving my answers. Like invasion of the body snatchers or something. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, I know this human being like I, I, I spend social time occasionally with this human being, which she's, you know, her family's visiting uh, my friends. But like, I, I, you know, this is like a different animal, this interview we're doing. Yeah. It's a fucked medium. It, it, it's so it, hard it really to do. Is. Yeah. Well, dude, this was, I, I, you've got another bunch of shit you got to do, I'm sure. But this has been uh, amazing. I've loved chatting with you. I hope you keep doing what you're doing. I can't wait to see your next project. Is there anything you can like share right now? Or uh, We got a book on Iran's space program that I'm currently struggling to finish. We've got, I'm going to do so some So you're still doing the on, real, the real analysis kind of work too. Yeah. I, I, I got, I'm consulting on somebody else's podcast that I think is going to be pretty cool. You know, we, we, we call our open source work new tools. Uh, and we've been working with a couple of people on my Slack channel and a tech company in San Francisco for the weirdest new tool you've ever seen. But I think that's all I can say about that. 
very sexy. Do you guys teach the new lit. teach these tools in uh, Monterey? I do. I teach a uh, new tools class every semester, and this year I am teaching a new tools class uh, at our Middlebury campus in January. All right. Well, this has been great, man. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in person in Monterey. Hopefully, before too long, we'll see. We have to invite you for another conference. Oh my God! Yes, please do. All right, dude. Thanks so much. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, that was awesome. Thanks yeah. for having me on. Thanks, buddy.